And when the answer is other than we wish it could be, that's when your faith is most tested. It's not easy to hear because we all think we're God. You know, we, we think we have the answer to our <laughs> lives and we try to play God in our lives. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. This week, I speak with Eric Fellman, a longtime volunteer and organizer with the National Prayer Breakfast, a bipartisan event for D.C. politicians, which has grown into an international relationship-building conference over its 70 years. Well, there's a bit of history to it. Back in the 40s, um, during the wartime, uh, there started up in both the House and the Senate a voluntary group, small group of people that said, no matter what we come from, we've got to pray about this because we need God's help. We're losing this war, you know, in the early days of the attack on Pearl Harbor. And those groups stayed in place after the war was over. And Eisenhower heard about the groups and said, well, could I attend one of those groups? And they decided, well, no, but we could all get together and have a meeting where you came and all the little groups, which was at that time about 75 or 80 sitting members of Congress, both House and Senate. And so that was the first national prayer breakfast. That's sort of the inaugural event. And over time, it became something to which the members are, they're in charge of it. They're in charge of the program and so on. But they would invite their counterparts from other parliaments and governments around the world and also friends from their states. So people from the 50 states and from many countries would come. And beneath the, the structure of the prayer breakfast, there rose up a group of volunteers who would host those people when they came. And th so the National Prayer Breakfast has a group of volunteers that host the guests on behalf of the members of Congress. And I became a part of that group through a series of circumstances. First, I was asked to attend as a guest from my state of New York. And then later, uh, during a career change, I contacted one of the people I'd met there just as an interest person. And he said, come down and visit us. Let me show you what we do behind the scenes. And I came for six months and left 12 years later. So what was it about that process and about the event that made you want to stick with it, that you felt that this was meaningful? So I was raised in a family of faith, and it's particularly a family that had high regard for the Bible. In fact, before I went to journalism school at University of Wisconsin, I spent three years at a Bible school so I would know the Bible as well as I knew my journalism. That was my internal goal. And from that, I you know just felt like I know a lot about the faith, right? So I came to this one-day thing. I took a train down from New York to Washington. This fellow met me. He took me to a guest house that the prayer breakfast owned, which I didn't even know about. He just took me there. It's on the, the banks of the Potomac. And we had a wonderful afternoon talking. And then he said, I'd like to ask you a few questions because um, you're a person of faith and you've studied uh, particularly the teachings of Jesus, right? I said, yes. And he said, okay, let me ask you a few questions about the teachings of Jesus. First of all, um, what's the chief purpose of a follower of Jesus? And I had my ready answer, and it was, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. And he goes, well, no, actually, that's not what Jesus said. When they asked him what's the chief purpose of life, he said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And I go, okay, there's a little something there. I flunked point one of this quiz. <laughs> to be fair, he did actually say what you said at some point. 
Yes, but he was saying, <laughs> what did Jesus say? If you're such a student of the Bible, he was sort of poking at me, which yeah. was fine with me. I was in a transition. I kind of wanted to listen to whatever I was going to hear. So then he said to me, okay, what's the work of a believer? And I go, this, now it's go you into all the world and preach the gospel, right? And he says, actually, that's not what Jesus said. When they asked Jesus at the Capernaum synagogue, what's the, what work does God require? His answer was, God requires that you believe in the one whom he has sent. In other words, you believe in him. And that really got to me that I had canned answers that, that didn't fit the real person that I wanted to know closely, which was Jesus of Nazareth. And so this fellow said to me, he'd been there 25 years doing this volunteer work behind the scenes. Our goal is that everybody who comes to the prayer breakfast has a chance to meet that Jesus, the authentic Jesus, not the one that's been packaged by this denomination or that denomination. And that really attracted me. And then events began to evolve and I was asked to participate in some teams and 12 years went by and then I left the area. I think the most important thing to me is another friend that I met during this time said to me, you realize Jesus wasn't a Christian, don't you? And I said, what do you mean? He said, Jesus never uttered the word Christian that we know. You look at all the record of the gospel, he never uttered the word Christian. So he certainly never asked anybody to become a Christian. So why do you think it is that in your faith, you know, which he defined as the denominational track I came out of, you ask people to become Christians. Why don't you ask people to do what Jesus asked them to do? And of course, I, I said, yeah, to follow him, right? And he said, yes. If we ask people to follow Jesus, we get away from talking about Christianity and we talk about this unique person who's respected and loved by everybody from Mahatma Gandhi to, you know, Lincoln. And shouldn't that be our subject, not our Christian content? And so I, I would say that, you know, if you ask me, yes, I'm a Christian, right? But that's not what's important to me. What's important to me is how vital is my relationship with that person, Jesus Christ. In preparing for this event, in different meetings, speaking with people, and even the event itself, are there times where you've had really memorable experiences or felt like you saw the hand of God in what was happening in organizing this? Absolutely. In fact, for those 12 years, I was in probably the 25 people who were there all the time. And then the other volunteers would come in once a year. And we would pray a prayer a month before, and we'd pray it every day. God, please help us get out of the way and please you show up. And that was the heart of everybody that came. And we saw God show up in lots of different ways with significant, you know, one of the most incredible ones that made it in the press and anybody could check on was the year that we invited both uh, Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin's widow, and we set them at the same table. And uh, if you are familiar with that period of history, most people thought that that um, Yasser Arafat had caused the death of, of uh, Prime Minister Rabin. And so how could you possibly do this? Well, they both had a faith in Jehovah, you know, and one came from a Jewish perspective and one came from a Muslim perspective, yes, but there needed to be confession and forgiveness. And there was a wonderful moment when the two of them were together in that room that was just absolutely amazing. And you knew God showed up that day. 
You know, I can't help but wondering if you're holding an event like this for members of the U.S. House, the U.S. Senate. First, do people put aside politics for an event like this? And has that changed over the years? So one of the things that amazed me was this event is done by the members of Congress. Every year there are two Mm co-chairs. One year they're from the House and the next year they're from the Senate. And they determine the program. I actually never invited anybody. I was given the right to nominate somebody to be invited by a member of the House or Senate. They stay very much in control of what happens. And the groups that lead that are the groups that still meet to this day. There's a significant group that meets every Wednesday in the Senate. They meet for breakfast and they pray together. Weekly. Weekly, every week. When they're in session, obviously when they're out of session and home, they're not. But those meetings have been going on since the 40s. And they've now consolidated that they do meet in the Capitol, in the Capitol building. They have they have a dining room they utilize on, on those two mornings, a Wednesday morning in the Senate and a Thursday morning in the House. and there's at least 30 to 50 senators and and 40 to 50 uh, House members that meet every week. And they agree to meet around the teaching of Jesus. Somebody shares something from the teaching of Jesus that's meaningful to them. They agree to not bring any professionals in. They don't bring any clergy people in the room. In fact, if you're not a member or the guest of a member because you're a member of a parliament somewhere, you're not allowed in the room. So there's no outsiders in the room. Thirdly, they agree to confidentiality. Um, I I met a former member one time and I said, what was the most dramatic thing of that? And he told me, he wouldn't give me the name because of confidentiality, but he told me the day that a controversial member of the other party just broke down and talked about his son who had been caught drunk driving and they realized he was an alcoholic and it hadn't hit them. And he asked the, the people there from both sides of the house and both sides of the Democrat and Republican, to please pray for my son. And that none of his enemies, political enemies, took that out to the press. You know, and and those kind of things happen frequently, even today. I will agree with you, there's less outside the room camaraderie between the members. But those who commit to that weekly meeting, there's something growing there that does give me hope for our nation. Mm. So that hope for our nation whether it's that or or for your own personal faith, being part of this National Prayer Breakfast, has that strengthened your faith? Oh, I think um, undoubtedly it strengthened my faith. It's taught me that if you put God first, he will show up. Mm. Like I said about that prayer that we prayed, I can't tell you, for years we've met in the, a big hotel on the, a little bit on the northwest side of, of D.C., and I would be thinking, I've got to catch so-and-so. And there's 3,500 people running around that hotel. And I would go to the escalator and just stand by the escalator for a while. And sure enough, that person would come up the escalator and I could grab them for the two minutes I needed and go from there. Some of the most dramatic experiences I've had related to this are the event is a two-day event. You know, you come in on Wednesday night, you have breakfast with the president on Thursday morning, and you close with dinner on Thursday night. But Throughout the year, the members, especially those who've met somebody from another country, dispatch those of us who were volunteers to go visit on their behalf or to go with them to visit somebody on behalf of the prayer breakfast movement, not on behalf of politics. 
So I've traveled in Africa with a couple of senators who are now former senators. They were sitting senators at the time, but they traveled not on on government money. They traveled to go and visit people and say, what was your experience at the prayer breakfast? And can I tell you how my faith informs me? Now, everybody would ask them for political stuff, right? But they would go for that other purpose. And since they couldn't use government money, they couldn't take their government staff. So I would go and carry the luggage and make the plane reservations. It <laughs> just get to be a, a fly on the wall for these things. And they were amazing meetings. And the impact throughout the year of that kind of thing was was much more than just what the two days was every February. So you mentioned presidents being invited to this National Prayer Breakfast, and I'm not asking for any names. In fact, maybe it's better not to have any, but over the years, have you seen that be meaningful to them, that it was not just a formality to show up or polite to show up, but that it was something meaningful for them? Yeah, I'll tell you a little story, and I won't name the uh, person on either end, but this is an absolutely true story. So the prime minister who had the number one job, some some nations, the prime minister is the top job and some not. But in this case, it was a woman and she had the top job for her Asian country. And she was invited by a member of the Senate to come to the breakfast. And they just hit it off. He didn't know much about her, but he knew that her country was critical in a certain period of time in the late 90s and that she was under a lot of pressure and he wanted her to know that the, that the Senate gathers to pray for world leaders and for their own president and for peace. That's the three things they pray for consistently all the time. Mm. And he invited her to the day that they dedicate to doing that and that our president shows up to do that. And so she came, she was introduced and she was prayed over. And he said to her, um, if you need anything, we've just you know, please communicate to me directly. Here's my chief of staff's phone number and so on. And a few weeks later, she contacted the chief of staff about a serious problem in her country. And he really wanted to communicate that he would do something about this, but he was trying to think of how. So I got the call from him because I had been on his team before on international trips. I go to his office. He says, I can't go. I'm sending you to go. And I want you to carry this letter because it's very it's very impactful when an emissary comes carrying a letter to someone at the level of the prime minister. So I'm not going to talk to her on the phone. I'm sending you. I'm telling her that I'm sending an, em, an emissary and it's you. Get on a plane tomorrow and get there. You're the volunteer. Clear your schedule. So, so I did. And I show up, you know, 14 hours later somewhere across the world. And there's a message for me at the hotel that a car will pick me up at seven in the morning. I go and she's there with a Navy steward serving scrambled eggs and, and I'm having coffee and eggs. And she said, I understand you have a message for me. And I gave her the message. She opened it and she said, will you wait for a reply? And I said, absolutely. I don't know what's in there. Mm -hmm. My name didn't matter. It was really good for me. My name didn't matter. It was who I represented. How much is that like our lives? We don't matter. It's that we represent God in other people's lives that matters, right? And um, afterwards, uh, the problem had to do with the, actually the American ambassador in that country was withholding grain that was to feed some starving people because of a flood because he wanted her to make a political announcement. So he was withholding the grain on the docks. And I didn't know any of this, right? 
And so she told me when she came back, she said, I've written about this problem and it's a problem of grain on the dock. So please carry it back to him as soon as you can. So I was ready to go the next day. And on my way back to the hotel to spend the night to get on the plane the next day, I get a call from the embassy who, through their intelligence, knew that I had had a personal meeting with the prime minister. <laughs> and so the ambassador called me in. Who are you? What are you doing here? You know, and I said, look, I don't know anything. And really, I really didn't. Like, you know, I have no title. So all I know is that Senator so-and-so sent me here and that he asked her, what do you need? And she needs some grain that's on the dock. So I'm carrying the letter back. That's all I know. And he just went white. You know, I didn't tell him I knew that she thinks he's resisting it. Right. So I get on the plane 14 hours home. I get home. And on like page three of the Washington Post is this announcement of grain being unloaded as a gift from the American people. <laughs> it got unloaded while I was on the plane. Mm. And I uh, that was a relationship between a senator and a leader of a country who cared about what happened in that country. It was amazing. So a prayer breakfast is a gathering, a gathering of people to combine their faith, their prayers, obviously, to cement relationships. But of course, in recent years with COVID, how has that wended its way through those events? So the breakfast had to be canceled for 22 and 2021. And it was done as a virtual event. They had speakers, the president gave a message, and you could tune in, you know, on streaming video. This year, they're going to try to gather people back again. But with all of the security concerns regarding January 6th and the rest of that, it, it's going to be difficult to figure out how do you gather people when there are so many uncertainties. And so what I would say is people of good heart who would say this is a wonderful thing that prayer comes to our capital city and that some of our leaders stop for 24 hours and pray together that, you know, you can come in that room on a typical year and see the Democrats and Republicans sitting side by side and saying a prayer one after the other. And you can see the co-chairs, one a Democrat and one a Republican, honoring others, honoring each other. This year, we have that chance again for that to be seen with, with a live audience, but it's going to be hard to execute. So just pray that it be executed well. It needs prayer around it. Did you learn from your family growing up about the power of prayer? Was that an important thing to you then, or was that a later development? No, my my family believed in prayer very, very greatly. And I had a an experience when I was 21 years old, I was I was uh, nearly killed in an accident. And in fact, the doctors that I was rushed to, to emergency hospital and uh, the doctors there said, you know, he's not going to make it. They actually told my dad that on the phone. I was a couple hundred miles from home when it happened. And um, my mother, my then fiance, who's been my wife for 47 years now, <laughs> They, they got all their friends together and they began to pray. And I truly believe that my life was saved in great measure because of those prayers. One of the two doctors dealing with me the day before I got hurt uh, in the accident, he was at a seminar. This was in Wisconsin. He was at a seminar in Madison, about two hours away from Oshkosh, where I was hurt. Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And... Um, he decided to stay for one more seminar, and the title of the seminar was New Techniques for Soft Tissue Injury to Livers. It's very narrow. So the biggest problem I had was my liver split open. 
And then no, there was no techniques for that. So he said to my then fiance, now wife, later when she flew out to be with me, he said, we decided he was a goner anyway. So I said, why don't I try the stuff I saw in that seminar? Where's Just that? Like, where's what that do we have to point? lose? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So do I think it was a coincidence that he stayed for that seminar just less than eight hours before he used that content to save my life? Mm. No, I do not. I, I would I would not uh, threaten divine angst by by saying, oh, that was just a coincidence because it wasn't. So events like that, I mean, there's always the you always seem to have the choice to exercise faith and say, I really do see the hand of God in that. Yeah. Or I could choose to see that as wasn't I just darn lucky. Yeah. So having events like that happen in your life, does that strengthen your faith for the times when you don't see yet what a solution is? I often will say, and in fact, if you want to talk about faith, you should have my wife on. She's a greater person of faith than I am. She never believed him that I was going to die. She jumped on an airplane. They said, don't get on it. She was in San Diego. She said, don't get on an airplane. He's going to pass away and he'll be buried in Minneapolis because that's where he's from. She didn't listen to that. She got on an airplane, right? So she's a tremendous person of faith. And throughout our lives, we will turn and we will say, I don't know what the answer is, but I know he knows, and we're going to just keep going forward. He knows. That's a simple phrase for us. He knows. So what are the things, and I'm going, to, I, I'm going to venture a guess that prayer is one of them. What are the things that make you feel through your own personal habits or observances or ways that you feel connected to God? I think that, you know, prayer for me is a conversation with God. It's not a formal thing where I sit down and follow an outline. And I certainly try to make it a conversation so that I will say something and then I'll sit still with a with a pad of paper and a pencil in my lap and listen and see what God might be saying. And I just write down my impressions. I'm, I'm not telling you I hear a voice booming in the corner of my, I have a little room here in, in my office and I just have a nice soft chair and I go sit in it in the mornings every morning and do some of this. But every once in a while, I'll get a thought that really takes off. And I know that thought's been because I took time to listen. And he spoke through my inner voice to what I should do that day. I had a tough situation this morning, personnel situation, where there were one side said he said this, and the other side said he said that. And there was a big misunderstanding. And I got one question this morning in that quiet time that unlocked the two sides to talk to each other. Instead of heat, there was light on the situation and they got out of the heat and into the light and resolved it. But I didn't have that question when I sat down in that chair this morning. Mm. So over experience, you've learned to trust those impressions that you get in those listening moments. You've answered this next question a little bit already, but because people everywhere have free will, there's the question of I'm praying for certain things to happen or maybe not to happen or for as I get more mature, just praying that God's will will be done instead of necessarily instructing him how he should do things. <laughs> but do you see efficacy of praying for an entire nation? Pray, for instance, my wife and I, we look at each other sometimes and as we pray for an end to the current war in Ukraine. And you can hardly think about some of the things that are happening to families and babies and people being torn apart. And we continue to pray for that. What do you think and feel about praying for 
national and world events that that one person alone can't really have an effect on necessarily? Well, I certainly think that all of us who are exploring faith in our life, you will come across situations like, you know, God doesn't want wars to be fought, right? Right. So the easy thing is, well, why doesn't he stop them? Well, the trouble is he gave us a free will and we chose to hurt each other. And he chose to step back and say, if enough of you choose to follow me, these things will go away. If enough of you don't choose to follow me, you're still going to struggle with these things until, you know, in my system of belief, someday I'm going to come back and put an end to the mess. Okay. But, but until then, live as if I'm coming back and live your life in the circumstances you're in. So it's right to pray that bombings stop in Ukraine. And when the answer is other than we wish it could be, then that's when your faith is most tested. It's not easy to hear because we all think we're God. You know, we, we think we have the answer to our <laughs> lives and we try to play God in our lives, right? You know, when I was injured, I was going to be an invalid. That was the first result. I was in a wheelchair and a lot of stuff broken and it depressed me. And then I came across this verse from David where he said, though he slay me, I will yet serve him. And that spark, if David could say that in the middle of a war, then I could say, I'm going to get up one more time and try this rehab, you know, and, and even if I stay in this wheelchair, I will serve him. I can keep that commitment, which I'd made as a younger person, which I'd made when I went to school. And now I was out of school trying to find my first job. And, you know, I had this setback, right? Yeah, that's, that's when you get to put your faith in action. It becomes a principle of action. Yeah. And you never know who's watching. And the first people that are watching when you become a father are your kids. And so somebody is always seeing that you're reacting rightly or wrongly. And when you react rightly, you have no idea the ripple effect it has on other people. Thanks again to Eric Fellman for speaking with me. The National Prayer Breakfast is held yearly, usually the first Thursday in February. This episode was produced and edited by Heather Bigley. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, we hope you leave a comment or a review where you get your podcasts, doesn't matter where. That really helps spread the word. You can find us on Twitter at InGoodFaithPod, on Instagram and Facebook at InGoodFaithPodcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in Good Faith.